have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me once again to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're brand new this morning, uh, last Sunday morning I began a study of this passage, Ephesians chapter 6, really verses 10 all the way through verse 20, as it presents us with this subject of spiritual warfare and the absolute necessity of putting on the whole armor of God. And the Apostle Paul wants believers to know that the Christian life involves conflict and struggle. And that doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a relatively short amount of time or if you've been a Christian for many, many years. You know by now that the Christian life, it's more of a battleground than it is a playground. And really the key to victory will be understanding your position in Christ and appropriating by faith your vast and unending reservoir of spiritual resources that you've been given in Christ. And so how good it is to know that in spite of the fact that life does involve struggle and spiritual warfare and that kind of thing, we're not left up to ourselves to get through it. It's not fake it till you make it with Jesus, but he gives you what you need to endure the pressures and the attacks and onslaught of the enemy. Now, uh, Paul spends the first half of the book of Ephesians really walking the church through all of these resources that are ours, and he explains for us what it means to be in Christ. In fact, you might even say that his, his emphasis, his theme, he expresses this back in chapter 1, verse 9, where he talks about making known the mystery of God's will, which according to his purpose, he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Now listen to this. To unite all things in him. In other words, to bring everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ, whether that be things in heaven or things on earth. And so this is God's purpose in Christ that everything be united in him and under his lordship. And so the believer's union with Christ is the emphasis here in Ephesians. That your salvation is a matter of you being united to Christ by faith. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the apostle Paul is doctrinal in his emphasis. Uh, he wants us to know our position in Christ and then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's very practical in his emphasis. He wants us to know the responsibility that we now have, living out in the power of God's Spirit, our position. In light of our position in Christ, Paul says, here's how you ought to live. And he goes right on down the line and talks about how this impacts our relationships in the body of Christ. He says that now believers, whether you're you come from a Jewish background or a Gentile background, we're brought into one body, having been brought into union with Christ. This was a mystery hidden uh, in time past, but now it's been plainly revealed in Christ. So there's a, there's a unity now between Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. So, so racial barriers, all of those have been torn down in Christ which is why the church ought to be just a beautiful place of unity where people from different backgrounds come together under the banner of Jesus Christ having been brought into this wonderful unity that's ours as the body of Christ. Uh, he gets specific and talks about how this, this union with Christ impacts us in the area of our relationships. 
uh, in chapter 5. He talks about husbands and wives, how your union with Christ ought to impact your marriage relationship. Uh, Parents and children, how this union with Christ determines the way that children obey their parents in the Lord. And that fathers, parents, fathers, mothers, how they they nurture their children in Jesus. This impacts the employer-employee relationship, the first part of chapter 6. In his day, in his context, he talks about masters and their bond servants and how they're to live in such a way uh, as to bring glory and honor to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then you come to this passage in chapter 6 where Paul says, finally. Now, at times, I'm afraid that we've been guilty of coming to this passage completely ignoring the context of the book of Ephesians, and we think, well, this is sort of a postscript, you know, sort of an attachment where the apostle Paul is now dealing with this subject of spiritual warfare as if he's saying, oh, by the way, before I close my letter, let me remind you that you have an enemy. No, what he's saying here is really the logical consequence of everything else that he's already stated. You need to know that there's an enemy who will oppose you at every level, Paul says, that I've, that I've already outlined, who will come against you in your home life, who will seek to divide you and drive a wedge between you and your spouse, who will try to bring disunity to the church and, and to stir stuff up You want to know why? Because listen, the enemy is all about putting up those very barriers that Christ has torn down. And Paul wants the church to be aware of this. You've got an enemy. And so the Christian life is is a life of warfare. And Paul is very clear that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual evil. And so with that in mind, I want you to read with me, uh, beginning in verse 10, Now, last week, we read the entirety of of this text all the way through verse 20, but I just want to focus on verses 10, 11, and 12. The Bible says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul is clear in his words here when he wants the church to know that there's an enemy who works against you and your progress in the gospel. And so what he does in this passage, I'm glad that he does this, but he unmasks the enemy. And so I want to speak from that subject this morning, unmasking the enemy. Now, just by way of illustration, um, one of my favorite, all-time favorite movie actors would have to be George C. Scott. Um, It's a tradition in our home every Christmas to watch George C. Scott's version of Ebenezer Scrooge in that classic Dickens tale, A Christmas Carol. And I just love George C. Scott, the way that he presents Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, he just does it with so much... I don't know, lack of emotion, the first part, just a mean guy. But then there's such a radical change that takes place, and I think George C. Scott's just a phenomenal actor. Well, one of his very best performances as an actor came in his portrayal of uh, the decorated World War II general uh, George Patton in the movie Patton. Now, if you know anything about Patton, he was a very eccentric man, to say the least. Um, But... 
In the movie, there's a scene in that movie where, where General Patton's intelligence service has sort of intercepted a German radio transmission that was bearing news of this impending attack by Germany's most decorated military leader, uh, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. And so on the morning of the battle, General Patton is awakened by one of his aides, and there's a book that lies open on his nightstand. And the title of the book is this, The Tank in Attack, by none other than Erwin Rommel. And so as the Allied forces launch their surprise assault on uh, their German enemy, there's a scene in this movie where Patton, he's watching it all unfold from a ridge. He's looking through a pair of binoculars, and he's got this big smile on his face as he shouts, Rommel, I read your book. <laughs> Actually, he added a few other choice words, which I'll not repeat, but I thought that's a good illustration. How do you win a battle? Well, you read the enemy's playbook if he's written one. You see, the thing is, when it comes to warfare, knowing who your enemy is and how he operates, that's a very important part of waging warfare. Now, you can rest assured that the enemy knows who you are. Chuck Swindoll has said this, that Satan's snipers have us in their crosshairs. They know us intimately. Having studied us for years, they're familiar with our strengths. They're fully aware of our weaknesses. They're masters of psychology and experts on human nature. They know their prey far better than we know our devilish predators. Now, folks, no matter how long you've been a Christian, Satan and his demonic host, they have one thing in mind with regard to you, and that's your destruction. They want to see your life being lived in fellowship with God. They don't want to see you bringing glory to King Jesus. And even though these dark powers are defeated and they're waiting for their ultimate doom, they've made it their aim to take down as many with them as they possibly can. And so that's why Paul wants the church to know how serious this conflict really is. And it demands that we as believers stand in the strength of God while being dressed in God's own armor. And so we'll get to that later on as we'll look at this armor that's outlined in this text piece by piece and see how ultimately it, 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 it's Jesus that's being described here. Jesus is the believer's armor. Jesus is the believer's victory. And Jesus is the believer's strength. But for our time remaining this morning, I really want to survey what the Bible has to say about our enemy because in his word, God has unmasked the enemy, which means that we don't have to be in the dark about who he is or how he operates, all we simply need to do is read the book. And so I want to give you just some general principles as it relates to unmasking the enemy. So principle number one, uh, you and I must see that the struggle we're faced with in life, ultimately it's spiritual in nature. Now I know that's a mouthful of a statement, but where this really begins, if you're to unmask the enemy for who he is, Paul wants you and me to know that the struggle that we face in life, ultimately, it's spiritual in nature. Notice there in verse 12, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, if for one second, your physical eyes were to be open to the spiritual forces that do battle against your soul, it would absolutely shock you. It would change the way that you live your life. 
would forever impact the way that you view prayer. I guarantee you would take prayer so much more seriously than you would now. You'd be much more sensitive to the truth of the Bible. You wouldn't be so quick to judge your circumstances. And so in a sense, this is what Paul does for us here in this passage of Scripture because he's opening up, as it were, our spiritual eyesight and wants us to be alert to the presence of an unseen enemy. And he says that our life in this world is so serious that it demands we be armored up. We have a very real enemy. And we need certain weapons to combat this enemy. But now listen to this. The armor that we need is spiritual in nature because the conflict that we face is spiritual in nature. Now I sort of touched on this last week, but recognizing the nature of our conflict, this is half the battle when it comes to this issue of spiritual warfare. You see, Paul wants the Ephesians to see that the source of their struggle the very source of their conflict. It's not physical, it's not political, it's not relational, it's not financial. No, Paul says that it's spiritual in nature. Now the devil would love nothing more than for you to assume that your enemy is a person in your life or that the real source of your problems, they're all circumstantial and physical and that kind of thing. If he can convince you that your number one problem is flesh and blood, then he can deceive you into believing that the solution to that problem is flesh and blood. Which is why you got all these people getting so worked up when it comes to the politics of our day. Because somewhere along the way, the enemy has confused a whole bunch of people as to believing that the real issue in our time is political. And so there's so many people who are rushing to political solutions because they think that the problem of humanity is political or economic or financial or environmental. No, none of that, according to Paul. Paul says the issue is spiritual. You need to know that man's problem is spiritual. There's an enemy There's a serpent in man's garden. And so Paul unmasks this enemy for us right here in these verses. Now, just a few things here by way of just sort of an overview as to who this enemy is. Now, we really need to know some things about this enemy if we're to fully understand why we need the armor of God. So what do we need to understand about this spiritual enemy? Well, first of all, notice something about the personality of this enemy. One of the first things you and I need to understand about the enemy of our soul is that he is an evil person and not simply a symbol for evil. Now, there are plenty of people today who would deny the personality of the devil, and they say, well, the devil's not really a literal person, but they see him as being more of a symbol for evil. And the idea that Satan is a very literal person, this has fallen out of favor with today's materialistic, modern worldview. What we need more than anything, folks, is a biblical worldview. Because I've got more confidence in God's inspired verdict on what's real and not real than I do the opinions of the most educated and allegedly enlightened minds of our age or any other age for that matter. So this is an issue of biblical authority. Jesus himself believed that Satan was a literal person. David Pallison has said that we need to know that Satan is not merely a personification of evil forces. Evil comes in a person, 
a, per, a perverse covenant lord aiming to command our disloyalty to the true king. The devil is a purposeful, intelligent, malevolent, personal agent behind the webs of deception spun by individuals and ideologies, a liar works behind the violence and violation done by evildoers, whether individual or institutional, a murderer works. So that's an accurate summary of our evil enemy. And that's one that Paul could agree with because he says here we need to be dressed in the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil, the personality of our enemy. And so that brings up a question. Someone says, well, what's the origin of this enemy? Where did he really come from? We don't have time to get into all of the wherefores and therefores, but basically, at some point before Genesis chapter three in the fall of humanity, there in the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that Satan is a fallen angel who at some point in the past rebelled against God and led at least a third of the angels into that rebellion. And I believe this is alluded to in Old Testament passages such as Isaiah chapter 14 where he's described as being Lucifer, day star, son of the morning star. I, uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, he's referred to as an anointed guardian cherub who led a rebellion, who fell, was cast to the ground. And so at some point, this mighty angel who decides to lead a rebellion against God, who decides that he wants to exalt his throne uh, to the status of God's home throne and usurp an authority that was not given to him, he's cursed. And he's known as Satan throughout the scriptures. That word Satan uh, means adversary in Hebrew. In other places, he's referred to as the devil. Paul refers to him as the devil there in verse number 11. Uh, that, that word means uh, one who slanders, the accuser. And so as the devil, he's the accuser of God's people. You see his activity in Job chapters one and two, which by the way, listen, Satan cannot have access to your life without divine permission. Though he is a very real personality, uh, he, listen, don't think of good and evil. Satan and God is sort of this cosmic dualism of, of equals. The devil would want you to believe that he's God's equal, but he is a created being, and as such, he is subject to, to omnipotence. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He's subject to God. Martin Luther said that he's God's devil. And so that's really his personality, and you need to understand that. And then something else to mention has to do with his power. You need to know something about the power of the enemy. He has a very real power. But it should be understood that his power is not exercised independently. Rather, he only has that power which has been given to him by God. The only pa he's powerful. He's more powerful than you are. He's more powerful than I am, but he's not anywhere near as powerful as God is. And he only has that power which God has given to him and not one ounce more. And so he tries to subvert the plan of God and he tries to oppose and attack the people of God. But you see, here's the thing. He only ends up serving the purposes of God. 
And so you see all kinds of other names and descriptive titles given of our enemy throughout Scripture. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's referred to as the ruler or the God of this world. Little g-o-d. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. He's the influence behind this present fallen world system. And fallen humanity has come under his influence. When God creates Adam in his own image, Genesis 1 and 2, dominion is given to Adam, but that dominion is lost because of Adam's sin. You might could say that the scepter was dropped and the devil picks it up. So that now the world of humanity, lost humanity, has come under the evil, sinister influence of the evil one. So the personality of the enemy, the power of the enemy, and then notice something else, the principalities of the enemy. Uh, we need to understand something about the enemy, and that involves his system of organized evil, which the Apostle Paul alludes to here in verse number 12. He says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but then notice he uses four specific terms to describe what we do wrestle against as believers. He says we wrestle against rulers. It translates a Greek term that refers to principalities that imply various places of rank or hierarchy. And I believe that the scripture teaches that there's a hierarchy of evil angels which do Satan's bidding. And then that word authorities there in verse number 12. Uh, this refers to powers of control and delegated influence. Notice Paul speaks of cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's the third term. World rulers. He's talking about the, the evil spiritual entities that stand behind, oftentimes, those corroded fallen kingdoms of man. And then he refers to spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The Greek word he uses there, it's the word pneumatic, pneumaticos. You know what a pneumatic instrument is, don't you? where you take some type of, a, of an instrument, you hook it up to an air compressor, and as the power of that compressed air flows through that instrument, the instrument functions. Well, the idea behind this term, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, uh, Paul is describing these spiritual entities that war against us behind the scenes, that influence what we often see there's a hidden, sinister, evil influence behind the scenes. And so you've got this combination of Paul's language here describing this spiritual evil that we face. And he's describing how the world as we know it has come under the influence of Satan. Now, folks, that's why we've got to take prayer seriously. That's why as a church we realize that ultimately our mission is not to, to gather a crowd but our mission as the church is to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only do that as we've been spiritually empowered by God because the world around us is in the dark and Satan has kept people in shackles, in chains. You want to know why there's so much issues, uh, there's just so much irrationality in our time where logic seems to just have gone out the window? You say, why is that? It's because there's an evil one who's working behind the scenes to try to keep humanity in the dark as to our true condition. We don't know how to interpret history. 
Man looks at history, we look at the history of the world and we see the wars, we think about uh, the last century and all of the bloodshed in the 20th century alone. You think the issue is just political? You think about the present situation, people at, at odds with each other and at each other's throats? You think the issue is just relational? We don't know what the world is coming to. You have no way of really approaching the future with any confidence if you don't understand what Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture. Don't come under the delusion that you think, well, the world is just becoming a better and better place. And somehow we're going to get all of these problems solved. We're going to create a utopia for humanity and unite the governments of the world we're going to do away with issues like climate change. Why? Because the world thinks that our problems are physical, environmental, political, but the Bible says the issue is spiritual. It's spiritual. So if we're going to unmask the enemy, it begins with understanding that really the source of our struggle is spiritual in nature, men and women. There is a serpent in the garden, and we must not forget this fact. Now, principle number two. If we're to unmask the enemy, we must be aware of the strategies that the enemy seeks to use against us. We we need to be able to accurately identify who the enemy is, but then we need to understand how he operates. And so Paul tells the church here to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And the word that he uses there, methodiah, Same word we get the word methods from. The idea is that of tactics or craftiness in setting a trap. Satan has certain strategies that he likes to employ against us. And you can read the book. He's unmasked. The same thing that he does in Genesis chapter 3 to try to deceive Eve. It's the same strategy that he often uses against me and uses against you. He challenges God's word. He distorts God's word. He lies and slanders God's character. He exploits the weakness of our flesh. He promotes the wickedness of the world. And so you have this unholy trinity that often work in tandem. You've got the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they're constantly trying to convince you that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And so notice a couple of things here about the strategies of the enemy. First of all, notice Satan's agenda. He's the opposer of God. His opposition to God comes from a character that's opposite of God's. And his agenda involves keeping people in the dark as to the nature of of reality, the truth. Uh, Paul, when he was giving his testimony in Acts chapter 26, he understood that his purpose and his calling from God uh, was to open the eyes of the Gentiles that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place at the table of grace. Paul clearly understood that if he was to be successful, he'd have to have the power of God in order to be faithful to God's calling on his life, that he may turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. 
Uh, He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So Satan's agenda is to keep men in the dark. He wants to keep people in chains and shackles, and so he'll counterfeit the truth, and he'll offer a lie in its place. He'll try to counteract God's sovereign rule. Everywhere you see God at work throughout the pages of Scripture, the devil is to be found there in opposition. And don't think that it takes God by surprise. Because there are certain things that we come to know about God and his character by virtue of the enemy's presence. We see him in in Eden. We see him in ancient Israel. We see him in the wilderness tempting the Lord Jesus. We see Satan active in the early church. We see him active at every level of human government and society. And he has a sinister agenda, and that agenda involves keeping people in the dark. Now, that's his agenda, but what about his activity? His activity. Satan's very active And really, you understand his activity in two ways. In relationship to unbelievers, Satan is very active when it comes to keeping people away from the truth of the gospel. He wants to prevent their acceptance of the truth. Uh, Do you remember where uh, Jesus gives the parable of the sower? And he talks about how the sower goes out to sow his seed. And the seed is a picture of the gospel the good news of salvation, and there are four different types of soils that that seed falls upon. Well, the very first type of soil, Jesus says it's hardened ground so that when the seed is sown and scattered upon that hardened ground, the birds of the air come and immediately snatch it away. And then when Jesus is explaining that parable to his disciples, he says that that this is a picture of Satan's activity that he wants to immediately snatch that seed away from an unbeliever so that they don't understand their sin, they don't understand their need for God's grace, they don't understand the gospel message of Christ's death and resurrection, they don't understand salvation by grace through faith. And so he'll often try to present some type of counterfeit in the place of the true. He doesn't matter if you're irreligious or religious, just so long as you don't understand the truth, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Satan wants to blind you to that truth. And so he'll make you, he has no problem with you being a religious person if that means that you understand your religion and your good deeds. This is what's earning you a place in heaven. Nor does he mind if you are an atheist who deny the presence of God or deny his own existence. He doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to him whether you believe he exists or not, just as long as you're in the dark when it comes to the truth. So his activity in relationship to unbelievers, and then what about his activity in relationship to believers? What does Satan often try to do in the life of a believer? On one occasion... You know, where Peter is showing so much gusto and bravado, and Lord, all these other disciples, even though they deny knowing you, I'm never going to deny you. (laughs) Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you. He's asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And so the devil is often very active in the life of a believer 
when it comes to offering temptation and a solicitation to sin against God because what he wants to do is drive a wedge between you and your fellowship with God. Now listen, he can't sever the relationship that you have with Christ if you're a believer. And people say, well, can a believer ever be possessed by the devil? I don't believe that a believer can ever be possessed by Satan because they're already possessed by Christ. Now Paul is writing to these Ephesian believers reminding them that they are in Christ while at the same time they're still in Ephesus. And temporarily, Ephesus is a place that's come under the domain and evil dominion of Satan, which means that there are going to be opportunities where Satan's going to come and try to harass these believers in their faith, attack these believers, try to bring depression to their soul, and to create a sense of despondency and despair in their mind. Later on in this text, Paul talks about the flaming darts of the evil one. I believe this is a reference to those evil thoughts oftentimes that Satan would want to plant in your mind to bring you to the point of total despair. As the accuser, he wants to bring up your past. He wants to bring up your sins. He wants you to be loaded down with such a weight of guilt so that you don't think that you're fit when it comes to serving God. Hmm. And someone has said, well, every time the devil tries to remind you of your past, you remind him of his future. So, so we've got to understand the agenda and the activity of the evil one. And this will better help us understand the schemes that he seeks to employ against our lives. Now, there's one third principle that I want to mention, and I'll finish with this. If we're to unmask the enemy, principle number three, we need to rely upon the strength that's ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're doing is just sort of walking backwards from verse 12 all the way back up to what Paul says in verse number 10. We need to understand who our enemy is. We need to understand how he operates. And once we do, then we can really understand why Paul says what he does in verse number 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We can understand what he says in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so the good news is, though we face this enemy who wars against us, men and women, we can be strengthened with the strength that is ours in Jesus Christ. Because the devil would have you believe that he's invincible, but that too is a lie. And while the outcome of this conflict, at times when we look at it through our physical eyes, it seems to be in doubt, we need to be reminded of the fact that victory has already been secured in Jesus Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, the devil is already a defeated enemy. And his defeat is seen in at least two ways. First of all, he has been defeated. You remember that in the garden, God made the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent even though his own foot would be bruised in the process. Now that's the first mention of the gospel in scripture. And the entire storyline of the Bible flows out of that promise in Genesis 3.15. It's the very first mention of the prophetic hope that Messiah would come and defeat the serpent of Eden. 
And so that verse really contains in a nutshell this reason behind all of this spiritual warfare which ultimately is waged between Christ and the serpent. Why is it that believers uh, face such hostility uh, living in a fallen world? Why is it that Satan would set his sights on you? And it's because you're in Christ. If you go back just a couple of chapters and look at what Paul has said in chapter 2, where he reminds these Ephesians who they were before they met Jesus. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's saying there was a time in your life before you met Christ that you were just sort of mindlessly going along with the rest of the crowd. You were in the camp of the devil. You were following the prince of the power of the air. But now the reason that they have an enemy, the reason that Satan has sort of made them a target, it's because they're no longer in the devil's camp. They're now in the kingdom of Christ. My citizenship is in a heavenly country. I've been transferred from a kingdom and domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light. Jesus Christ is my king, and I'm following a new prince. And because I'm following a new prince, the fallen prince of this world will attack my life and seek to drive a wedge between me and my new king. And understanding that and understanding that this is really where the battle is waged will help you see life with more clarity. But the good news is that Satan has already been defeated. How has he been defeated? The Bible says that he was defeated when Christ died on the cross in my place and in your place and rose again from the dead. It was then and there that the head of the serpent was crushed. Now, here's the thing. You read the Bible, it seems like all the way up until the Gospels, the evil one has tried to prevent Christ from coming. He's tried to prevent Christ from going to the cross. In fact, in the temptation narrative where Jesus is in the wilderness, the devil says, listen, all these kingdoms I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. Don't go to the cross Take a shortcut to the kingdom, but no, no, Jesus knows that his ultimate mission involves crushing the head of the evil one, and that's going to involve suffering. That's going to involve him being bitten on his heel, as it were. But you see, at the cross, victory was secured for me and for you. And you say, okay, well, the devil has been defeated. The pastor, that doesn't really answer the question, why in the world do I still struggle the way that I do? It seems like the devil shows up at my house. Sunday morning, we're trying to get out the door with the kids, and it just seems like the devil just throws so many curveballs our way. It seems like he's creating havoc in my home. It seems like he's creating havoc where I work. It seems like he's having a heyday in the world. There just seems to be so much strife and so much division and so much evil in the world. Well, that's why you need to be encouraged and you need to remember this second component of Satan's defeat. Not only has he been defeated, but he will be defeated. You see, the penalty of sin in my life has already been paid. And progressively now, through sanctification as a believer, the power of sin is being broken. And one day, 
Either when Christ takes me home via death or he comes again and I meet him by means of rapture, I'm going to be saved from even the presence of sin and the presence of evil. And Satan will ultimately be vanquished and banished forevermore. And the Apostle John describes this. If you just flip over to Revelation chapter 12, you see this beautifully presented by the Apostle John prophetically in Revelation chapter 12 where John presents this picture of this great sign that appears in heaven. There's a woman clothed with the sun. The moon is under her feet. On her head there's a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant, crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appears in heaven. Behold a great red dragon Seven heads, ten horns, on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now look at this in verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. Now this is a beautiful prophetic picture of, of the woman here. This is figurative of Israel. The dragon... This is none other than the serpent of Eden. This is Satan himself. But the child that's referenced to here, this is Messiah. So this is, this is the same language that's used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, describing the seed of the woman, which is the Messiah, and the serpent seed. And so look there in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. Satan couldn't stop Christmas from happening. Can I get a witness? She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. And so then John goes on to describe this great war that takes place in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. Verse 8, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven the dragons cast down the ancient serpent who's called the devil Satan the deceiver of the whole world he's thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down he who accuses them night and day before God how did they vanquish him? Did they do it by political strategies? Did they do it by building better churches? Bigger budgets? And more clever methods and those, no, none of that. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You want to know how you stand firm in the midst of spiritual onslaught? You do it by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. That's just good news. And so I liken it to a thunderstorm. You oftentimes see the lightning flash. And as long as the storm is in the distance, you may see the lightning flash, but it may be a few seconds before you hear the thunder roll. Men and women, let me tell you something. 
with reference to the defeat of Satan, the lightning flashed with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one day, at the return of King Jesus, the thunder's going to roll, and the enemy is going to be vanquished forevermore. I'm reminded of a painting I heard a story about. The name of this painting was called Checkmate. But in the painting, there's this young man who's playing chess with the devil. And the man's almost all out of pieces. The devil is grinning ear to ear because he knows that he's got this young guy cornered. It would seem that the game was over. It would seem that the devil has won. It would seem that the young man has no more moves. And so as the story goes, there are two men who are in an art gallery and they're looking at this particular painting. The first man gives it a casual glance and he wants to walk on through the gallery and see what else is there. But the second man, who is an international chess champion, decides that he he wants to stay there and he wants to study this painting a little bit more closely. And so that chess champion, he's staring at that painting and he stares at the chessboard and then he suddenly steps back with a smile on his face and says, it's wrong. There's one more move. He calls for his friend to come back over and he explains to his friend, you know, it's not checkmate like the devil thinks because the young man's king has one more move. If you find yourself getting weighed down with the evil in the world and the suffering of the world, then you need to be of good cheer. Remember that Jesus has already said, I've overcome the world. And folks, the king has one more move. Because one of these days, he's going to split the eastern sky. And he's going to come and establish his kingdom on earth. And what a day that will be. Let's stand for prayer this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you don't know this Jesus, I can't think of a better opportunity than right now, this morning, than to repent of your sin. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for you who rose again from the dead. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation is a new birth. It's a transfer of citizenship. No longer am I a citizen in the kingdom of darkness under the domain of the evil one. No, I've been transferred into that heavenly kingdom. Jesus is Lord. I bet that there are some folks here this morning, you feel like you're just absolutely battling in your life right now. Personally, relationally, maybe your marriage, your family, on the job. Maybe there's something in your past that the accuser keeps bringing to your mind beating you down with just this feeling of just worthlessness whispering lies in your ear and again my friend when the enemy of your soul reminds you of your past just remind him of his future Lord in Jesus name I'm so thankful that the battle is the Lord's. 
You've not left us alone in the struggle of life. In the Christian life, it is indeed warfare. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Therefore, our solutions to our problems are not flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare, the scripture says, they're not carnal, but they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And Lord, you've given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. May we look to him in faith and appropriate by faith all that you've supplied. Bring encouragement to our hearts. Use us, Lord, as your servants, willing servants to be on mission. Lord, to shine the light of Christ in our families and where we work. There's a world around us that is in darkness. But the enemy has been defeated. May we go forth in victory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.